Elizabeth Barrett is a wife, mother, grandmother, licensed marriage and family therapist, educator, eavesdropper, and emotion worker. And she uses all of these skills to address the subjects that we all grapple with in this conversation with the reluctant therapist. Happy Healthy Tuesday to you, Elizabeth. Thank you, Brad. Happy Healthy Tuesday. And we've got quite a topic ahead of us uh, today, don't we? Yeah, we do. Um, but before we jump in, I want to say hello to my gal pal friends at Apropos because I, I so appreciate them supporting the show because I started going there when I was in college 40 years ago. <laughs> I, I'm just, and it, it was uh, the most wonderful place to be. And for 40 years now, I pop in and I feel like I'm a kid again. So thank you. Thank you for supporting the show. Um, but today... Uh, we're delving into one of the most fundamental topics around mental health, and that's the idea of diagnosis and anxiety, and when is it that we need to seek treatment, and how is it that we view and talk about our own mental health and well-being. So it's when I started the show 15 years ago, I think this is year 16, one of the reasons that I was inspired to do this work was because I'd been in the field for 15 or 16 years at that point, and it was really concerning to me to see how the field that I had been trained in, which was about talk therapy and uh, taking personal responsibility for making changes in our life and accepting that some things are as they are, like grief or anxiety or oftentimes periods of depression, and those things that I'd been taught and trained to do and how I'd been trained to look at mental health and well-being were really being co-opted by big pharma medications, by managed care, and by this kind of adoption of the disease-based model of looking at mental health and mental wellness. And it was such a concern because the amount of people that were being put on medications and told, you're just going to be on this medication for the rest of your life and oh well, uh, was alarming. And then the amount of children that were starting to be put on psychotropic drugs and medications and told that they would be on them forever was even more alarming to me. And so I felt like I needed to say something because I looked around me in my profession and it seemed like everyone else was just nodding and going along and saying, yeah, I guess this is how it is. And mental health is mental illness is a disease and we need to treat it with medications. And, and so as everyone was nodding, I just grew more and more uncomfortable. I said, this isn't right. It doesn't feel right on any level. And there's not enough research to support that any of these changes that we're making are actually valid. And so that's how we started the show. And it was my hope that 16 years later, then more and more people would sing my song and that I would be able to stop having this conversation or be able to relax a little bit. But that hasn't happened. If anything, it's become bigger business. The mental health care field has become a bigger industry with more people doubling down on the diagnosis and the medications and finding ways to pathologize almost every aspect of the human experience. I think the killer for me was last year when the Diagnostic Statistical Manual added prolonged grief disorder <laughs> as a mental illness. And when that happened, the floor dropped out from underneath me. It's like, we've gone backwards in the 15 years that I've been doing this show, not become more aware. But once in a while, 
I find someone who sings my song. And it's the most exciting thing to have a conversation with someone who is is feeling the same thing, understanding the story, trying to sound the alarm, making relationships, training individuals to try to counter the industrial, the industrialized experience of mental health. And so I was reading my monthly psychotherapy networker and it came across an article. I know what's wrong with me, uh, social media and the lore of self-diagnosis. And it was as, as if my best friend had written an article and said, let's talk about it. Um, so my guest, the author of this article is Lynn Lyons, and she's a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist in Concord, New Hampshire. So of course, my new best friend has to live across the country from me, but that's okay because I feel like we're covering both ends of, of the country and we just need to move our influence and sphere into the middle a little bit. Um, she's been in private practice for 30 years, and she specializes in the treatment of anxiety disorders in adults and children, which is fabulous because anxiety is the most common mental health complaint that people have. And there are many ways to manage it that we forget are available. Lynn is a speaker and a trainer on the subject of anxiety. She's the author and co-author of many books and articles, uh, one including Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents, Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle and Raise Courageous and Independent Children. And Lynn is the co-host of her own poet podcast called Fluster Clucks. So I have invited Lynn to be my guest. We're going to grab a cup of, co cup of coffee and sit and talk about our experiences in the mental health field and, and where we see uh, change and where we see concerns and where we see the future. So this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. You can be part of the conversation after the show by sending me an email to elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. You can follow us on Facebook or Instagram and leave a message there as well. You can listen to our previous shows by visiting kcbx.org, or you can podcast the show by going wherever it is you find your podcast and look for a conversation with a reluctant therapist. Hit subscribe and leave a review, which is always helpful. And while you're searching, you can check out Fluster Clucks as well. So we're going to take a quick break and come back and start our conversation with Lynn Lyons. You are listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Take out of your wasted honor Every little past frustration Take out of your so-called problems Better put them in quotation. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And welcome, Lynn Lyons, to the program. Thank you, Elizabeth. Thanks for that great introduction. I, I was like, oh, I can't wait to hear who she's going to talk to. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's absolutely you. You have a long career of wonderful work. Thank you. So I'd love to start off with the article that first caught my eye. I know what's yeah. wrong with me. Social media and the lure of self-diagnosis. Tell me what inspired you to write that article. Well, I, I work with a lot of young people. I work with a lot of families. I work with kids that are little and I work with their parents, but I 
also work with a lot of teenagers and then those teenagers are getting older. And so I'm seeing a lot of college students. And then I'm also talking to new young therapists. Mm -hmm. And I was acutely aware of more and more young people coming into my office and saying, I took this quiz on social media, or, you know, even though you've known me for four years, Lynn, and you know that I have really significant social anxiety, I took a quiz and now I'm autistic. Or have you heard of this? And this will, I know, Elizabeth, make you roll your eyes, but have you heard of this new diagnosis called borderline personality disorder? I took a quiz for it and I have it. And so I I was finding that I was spending a lot of time doing something that I didn't really want to do, which was to talk these young people out of being more impaired than they were, right? I mean, that goes against everything that I stand for in this, this profession that we've chosen. So I forget exactly how the article came to be. I've written a lot for The Networker. And so Livia, who's the editor, called me and I think, oh, I, I, actually, I can re- I can t- tell you exactly how it happened. Mm-hmm. I was at the networker at the symposium down in Washington, which I present at, and I was sitting with a few other therapists, um, and this topic came up, and we went on a rant, and mm-hmm. it was very satisfying, I must tell you. We were all very caffeinated, so it was great, mm-hmm. and somebody from the magazine was overhearing the conversation and told Livia about it. And so Livia called me and said, Hey, I heard you had a conversation. And so that was the evolution of the article. Um, I think if I can just say, say one thing too about your introduction is that I think there are more of us out there than you think, but Mm -hmm. I think we're keeping our mouths shut Mm -hmm. because the environment isn't really right or very welcoming for us to express the fact that the mental health field is in many, many ways going in a pretty destructive direction. I think a lot of people are afraid to say what you say on your podcast and what I write about and what I talk about. I get a lot of pushback and I get a lot of pushback from young people saying that I don't know what I'm talking about, that I don't understand what it's like that they have more information than I do. So we're we're out there. I do feel like I'm screaming into the void sometimes, but um, I very much appreciate the message that you're promoting as well. Thank you. Yeah, I, I, I that feeling of aloneness can be frightening because as you said, that the pushback isn't just pushback, it's like cancel level mm-hmm. back sometimes. Mm-hmm. But what's interesting is the idea that if I can diagnose myself with something that's considered a serious disorder like OCD or borderline personality disorder, which side Nolan is interesting to me always that it's, it's a mental illness that only affects women primarily, <laughs> much like hysteria when Freud started, mm-hmm. treating women. but that's a whole nother mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. But he's very serious diagnosis that, that they're so lightly taking on as if that's a badge of honor. And from my experience as a clinician and even growing up, why would you want to make life harder by taking on something that would be considered a lifelong sentence in many cases that it, it just, it, it astounds me. And I see that in my classrooms on campus as well, that the students come to campus kind of loaded for bear because they've been to therapy. 
they've had these diagnoses, they're on medications, they want to become clinicians because they feel like they know everything about mental health now mm-hmm. that they've been to a therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes it challenging to teach the classes because they're ready to be very defensive of anything that counters what they've now, you know, created in their mind as the truth. Yeah, which is a strange thing that's happened. So I feel like I am very often or want to be the voice of optimism, like, hey, you can manage this or you can get through this or many people who get depressed get undepressed, that it's a depressive episode, that there are things we can do to prevent this happening in the first place. And the, like, I I feel like I'm like, hey, everybody, I've got good news. (laughs) And they're like, well, no, how dare you say? Like I had a, I had a young woman come up to me and because when I'm talking to young people, I'll, I'll often say there are, there are things that you can do that improve your mood improve your anxiety. There are things that you do that make it worse. And it's really important for you to learn the difference between those two things, because you are the manager of your operating system. And somebody inevitably will come marching up to that stage and say, how dare you say there are things that I can do to improve my life? And I'm like, what? Yeah, it's just so confusing. And I think that, I think a lot of it comes from right now, which I speak a lot about in terms of um, connection. I think that as a species, we are incredibly tribal. Mm -hmm. Living in New England and being a Patriots fan, I am very, very conversant in tribalism. And this is kind of the new tribalism, that Mm -hmm. a way for you to connect, a way for you to feel a part of something, a way for you to have some sort of frame for who you are I think it's very appealing. I think it's always appealing to human beings. I think it's super appealing to young people that are struggling. And I think currently in this world of disconnection that we live in, it's almost, you know, if we look at it, it's sort of when we when when the sociologists study this in 50 years, hopefully appalled by what happened, I think they will say this was an inevitable outcropping of disconnection and of humans' desire to connect and to a desire to define themselves in some way that allows them to feel a part of something. It's just not a part of something that you and I feel is very healthy to be a part of. So I wonder if in some ways it's become more and more difficult for young people to feel different, you know, that desire of teenagers to stand out, to have something unique about them. You know, again, being an old person, I say when I was in high school, I pierced my ear in the the bathroom, the second hole in my ear. And that was like my big rebellious moment. Mm -hmm. It's much easier to look rebellious, but Mm -hmm. like normalize and normalize and spread all these spread out all the ways that people can identify themselves or show their uniqueness. It's more and more difficult to feel unique. And I often sense that the mental health piece is almost like this island to stand on. This makes me different. This gives me identity and I don't smell into the crowd. Yeah. As one of, one of my favorite people in this profession says you're unique, just like everybody else. So there's this, there's this desire to feel unique and to, yeah, I just think also that things move in cultural waves. And so there are, there are, trends. And I say this, you and I have been in this profession for a while. This is a very trendy profession. 
And so certain diagnoses become trendy. They, They work their way into the public, but I just think it's so much easier now with social media and all the resources that people have for these diagnoses to become household terms in a way that wouldn't have happened 30 or 40 years ago. Exactly. And, you know, I also wonder, you know, when you look at the the trends of things, how people brand themselves, because the, the field of psychotherapy is no different than any other profession that wants mm-hmm. to be branded and marketed and have, you know, people stand out amongst the crowd. And so I, I feel very uncomfortable with the way that mental health professionals have started selling themselves and their practices like a consumer good. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that really is, um, I don't know, supportive of what this practice or this work should be. Like, I don't, I don't believe that mental health professionals should be uh, video stars or Instagram stars or doing their work on Instagram as examples of their practice. I, I don't know how you feel about that, but it makes me uncomfortable because well, what makes you need to, when you need to pay your mortgage by selling enough of your you know work, then do you, are you doing pure work? Like, will you let people go? Will you tell people, you know what? I don't think you have a disorder or I don't think there is anything that's really going on with you, you should just go enjoy and live your life. That's counter to what they're trying to sell, which is a a brand and a practice that everybody needs help. Yeah, it's interesting. I've had this discussion with my husband many times because he will, you know, and I am sort of wringing my hands about, like you say, the message, you're going to be on this medication for the rest of your life. He says, well, the model is set up to keep people ill. The model is set up to support not getting better. And So I sort of believe that. I certainly believe that about pharmaceutical companies. Absolutely. But when I think about when I think I'm not quite sure, it's sort of an interesting question I've been asking myself recently, because supposedly there's a huge shortage of mental health professionals. Mm -hmm. So why are we you know, we, we should have plenty of work. So why do we have to keep people in our practices that don't need to be in our practices? According to everything that we hear, there's somebody else waiting to get in. There's waiting lists and that kind of stuff. So I'm not quite sure what's going on with that. I think um, it's interesting that that the way the, the profession has evolved, because it used to be the Freudian model, right? The psychoanalytic model is that you did go to therapy three times a week for nine years, right? That was the course of treatment. And then the brief therapy or the solution-focused model came in in the probably like the 70s, right? Like early 70s. And that was really about how do we help people solve problems without having therapy be this long-term thing. And now we sort of moved into this next phase where through the medical model, we've decided that you have a chronic disease, mm-hmm. right? When I hear people say depression is like diabetes or this is, you know, this is a disease you have. This is a chemical imbalance. This is the way your brain works. So you're going to have to deal with this forever and ever and ever. That's very much pulling way back to this idea that you, you're going to have to keep treating this and never improve or never get better, which is just sort of strange to me. And it becomes who you are. I am a depressed person or I am an anxious person. And yeah. it's just the vocabulary around it is what gets people stuck. 
If you're mm-hmm. just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. And my guest today is psychotherapist, licensed clinical social worker, Lynn Lyons uh, from Concord, New Hampshire, podcast host, author, and a speaker and trainer on the subject of anxiety and its role within families. And so I, it sounds like you and I both believe that anxiety and depression are experiences, feelings that exist in the human lifespan. Mm-hmm. And that there are ways to manage it. So I don't want to. I don't want to give the message, the idea that I'm diminishing the feelings of anxiety. Being someone who experienced my first panic attack at 12 years old, so mm-hmm. I, t- I know. I know the course. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, me I, too. I the, okay, there. Me I know too. The life of it. Yeah, um, but I. But I want to talk about how the current messages about anxiety are, in some ways, keeping people stuck mm-hmm. in this anxious modality and and not able to actually live their lives. I'd love you to talk a bit about how we've changed how we look at anxiety or how we can change how we currently look at anxiety and make it something more manageable. Yeah. So first and foremost, I see, I really pay a lot of attention to the social components of both anxiety and depression. So one of the things that I am very clear about in my practice is that I don't see kids alone. And I am consistently railing about this. In fact, I just did an Instagram reel about it today, Elizabeth. But um, over and over and over again, parents will come up to me or even therapists that I'm training or that are coming to one of my trainings, and they're seeing six-year-olds or eight-year-olds or 10-year-olds or 12-year-olds, and the parents have no idea what the therapy goals are. They have no idea what their child is talking about. There's this mythical thing that a lot of therapists have sort of made up, I think, that it's really important for a child to have a private space to talk about what's going on. What's really important for a kid who's struggling is to have a communal space where the family has language and strategies and directions so that they can get out of the dysfunctional patterns they've been caught in. And so I definitely push back and, well, I get very irritated when kids are working without families because parents say to me all the time, just tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. Um, Go ahead. I was going to say it's interesting because I don't see children at all. Mm -hmm. And my model is that parents need to be the experts of their children and do Mm -hmm. their work and model for their children Mm -hmm. how it is to be an adult. And I, I feel like that's to me where the, one of our biggest turns was that second wave of feminism with our spike of divorce rates and all of these children whose parents were getting divorced. And it still currently happens. The parents would decide they were getting divorced. They'd already decided to move on. And then they would tell the kids, you know, the night before they moved out Mm -hmm. and children, and this is how it is. And we've put you in therapy as if the children somehow are broken or damaged and the message you're broke. So it's to me, it started then that mm-hmm. trend of throwing kids into therapy every time parents do something that disrupts their lives. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a great way to look at it. I can't, I, uh, I tell this story a lot. Um, I had this young boy come to see me. He was probably 13, middle schooler. His parents were going through an incredibly acrimonious divorce. Um, he was rageful. He was going through puberty, trying to deal with his dad's new relationship and all that comes with that. Mm 
He was diagnosed as bipolar. They put him on multiple medications. So I met with the mom. I met with him, you know, I, I, and then I had all three of them in my office and I sat there. It was a two hour session. And I finally said to the boy, I looked right in his eyes. His two parents were sitting on either side of him. And I said, Hey, I just want you to know something. I'm a trained professional. I've been doing this for over two decades. And sitting between your two parents for the last two hours has been so incredibly stressful. I can't imagine what it must be like for you. And he, he you could see he sort of, I mean, we were, we were buddies forever after I said that. The parents were kind of taken aback, as you can imagine. But here this kid had been diagnosed, medicated, and... I sat for two hours and watched what they had done for years Mm -hmm. in front of him. Mm -hmm. And it was just so kind of emblematic of exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know how we turn the ship on that because, you know, I work in the university. I teach a lot of the child development uh, majors and the message that they're consistently getting is pathologizing pathologizing children's behavior in the classroom. They quickly want to, you know, diagnose everyone with ADHD. Mm-hmm. They wanna, and then the children with oppositional defiant disorder, and I can do it on the list. It's all very typical and they checklist things. And these are students. And so they're going out into the workforce with this preconceived idea that children are born broken in some ways. It's mm-hmm. some diseases. And so I'm I'm trying to pull them in and say, before you even fill out that form, Find out what's happening at home. Are the parents okay? Is their marriage mm-hmm. working? Did the child eat breakfast before coming to school? Mm-hmm. Did they sleep for 10 hours? You know- Do they have a phone at <laughs> seven years old that they are looking at all night long? Yes. And, and not- so it's really, yeah, it's really hard to be a second grader on three hours of sleep. Yes. Yeah. And, it, and it's crazy to me that all of those behaviors aren't looked at first mm-hmm. that we jump so quickly to the medication aspect. It's, it's disheartening on epidemic levels for me mm-hmm. and I'm sure. Cause I don't, yeah. I don't know how, you know, if the universities now are cranking out students with this lens, I don't know how we counter it. And then it's the same, you work with young therapists and I do as well. The education they're getting is all about this medical model. And so, and most of them themselves have gone through some sort of therapy and probably are medicated. And so Mm -hmm. they're already coming into the practice with, well, this is the one way it works. What do you see? Is there, you know, what do you see is, I don't, I don't know what to say is hopeful. You said you're usually the hopeful person. Like, how do you see this? (laughs) (laughs) The hopeful person. How do you see this? Yeah. I've started describing myself as a generally optimistic person who feels irritated a lot. Um, So what's hopeful? Well, um, I think, I think, I guess my goal, if I were to say, so how do we turn this ship around? Because it feels like a big ship to turn around Mm -hmm. is that I do, I do talk to a lot of young people and I do have a lot of families and clients that I work with, you know, I'm still in the trenches. I still have a full-time practice that are absolutely relieved to hear me say, I really don't think there's something horribly wrong with your child. 
I think that we need to look at some family patterns that have probably been generational. And I'm going to show you how to get out of this anxiety cult, which is what I call it. And so if if I hear, I guess the, the thing that keeps me coming back when I'm feeling as disheartened as you feel oftentimes is when somebody says to me, okay, so I've learned more in this hour and a half with you than I learned in blankety, blankety, blank, because you explained it in a way that really made sense and really gave us some concrete things to do. And so that's what sort of keeps me in the game, I think, is that I do have feedback that the message is is getting out there. Um, In terms of the new therapists, I think I wrote about this in the article, but um, the the therapists that the young therapists that are angry or upset about the way I model anxiety because I am asking them to manage it. And they are saying that I am demanding that anxious people mask, Mm -hmm. which I think is a really weird distortion of offering people the skills of emotional management, the abilities to step outside of their thinking, the ability to recognize the patterns they have and give them ways to change those patterns the idea that asking somebody to not be anxious or to manage their anxiety so they're not having a panic attack in the middle of their chemistry lab isn't really masking to me. Again, that's me offering them something that's incredibly useful. So that's where I get a little frustrated is this idea is that if we tell you that you can't have every feeling you want to have in every moment, then that's a therapist telling you, you can't be who you are. I think that's a real distortion of what we try and do professionally. That's a really good point uh, because part of the education process at the university is to help prepare young people to go out and take on the complexities of the adult world. And Mm -hmm. probably that means that you have to show up even when you don't feel like you can show up, right? You sat in the car and your hands were sweaty, you know, for a half hour, you still get up and you show up. And I mentioned that to my students quite often. It's like, you know, I, I have to make myself get into this room to do my lectures often, but Mm -hmm. that's what I'm paid to do. Mm -hmm. And this is how I move through the adult world. And this idea that you need to have an accommodation because it's challenging or difficult isn't helping you learn to manage what it's going to be like in the adult world. But I think we've gotten so far to the other side of the pendulum of wanting to make sure no one feels badly or feels shame or feels embarrassed or feels trauma that no one I I think it just feels like you said, everyone's feeling every feeling every moment of the day. And so no one's ever really stepping into this mastery sense of I can have emotions and feelings Mm -hmm. and I can also not have the emotions and feelings when I need to do a podcast or show up for my job. And the way that we step through these difficult feelings is often to take action, right? So the more that we tell people that they have this disease, the more that we tell them that they are permanently disabled, the more passive we are making them. And both anxiety and depression are disorders of passivity. And so why would we as a field support the very thing that makes it worse? So if you say to an anxious person, you know, you have this chronic, lifelong, debilitating disability. And so we have to make sure that you are never triggered 
we are then saying to them, it's going to be really hard for you to go out in the world because the world's not going to cooperate with you. So you're going to be angry at the world. Your world is going to get smaller and your disorder is going to get worse. Mm -hmm. It just seems so, it just seems so counterproductive. Um, and yet, unfortunately, so, so common right now. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I've got, I've got kids and, and I've got schools. I do a lot of consulting, um, a lot of consulting with schools and they will say, well, we can't put in as many accommodations as they're asking for. Like, it's not possible for us to run a school in which nobody has any deadlines. It's not possible for us to run a school in which nobody has to participate in a fire alarm. It's not possible for us to run a school in which nobody has to give a presentation. And so it's really for me, how are we teaching you, like you say, to manage the feelings when they show up? rather than expect the world to prevent them from arriving. Because that just doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this is when you mentioned prolonged grief disorder. I was like, oh my God, you know, that was, you know, that we're saying to people, you can grieve for a certain amount of time. And then after that, you've got a problem. It's Yeah. You're mentally ill, which ill. is- You're mentally ill. You You have a psychiatric diagnosis. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and my guest today is psychotherapist Lynn Lyons, anxiety expert, author, and podcaster. And I invited Lynn on today to talk about the world of psychotherapy and uh, as we both know it. We're going to take a quick break and come back and continue our conversation right here on Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. Ooh, I'm Elizabeth Barrett, and this is a conversation with a reluctant therapist here with my guest, Lynn Lyons. All right, Lynn. So you, your expertise is in the work of anxiety and you coach and you consult and you do trainings. And so in five minutes, no, <laughs> but I would love you to kind of give an example of what the difference is between medicating anxiety and what you practice and teach, which is managing anxiety. What does that look like? So, and I would even sort of distinguish it a little bit differently um, mm -hmm. in terms of eliminating anxiety versus managing anxiety. And a lot of people go on medications, particularly benzodiazepines, with the goal of medicating. And then also people are self-medicating. Right. Yeah. So uh, eliminating, correct. So, so what I really talk to people is for one, I just want to normalize it, of course, I'm a huge, huge proponent of people understanding how this thing works. Mm -hmm. And that includes how the symptoms of anxiety that people experience are so 
physiologically um, necessary and sensical, if that's a word, sensical, in the context of an emergency. So, so we've got this system that is designed to keep us alive in the in the in the case of an emergency, right? True threat, predator, etc. Anxiety happens when we are not in a life or death situation, but when this same system is activated and the person who's experiencing it has no idea what's going on. And so the first thing is that I really want people to understand the reason your heart is pounding, the reason your tummy feels weird, the reason you're feeling lightheaded is because your body has been told that you're being chased by a grizzly bear and all of these really primitive reactions make perfect sense to keep you alive. Mm -hmm. So then we can sort of demystify and depathologize these reactions that happen. My goal in working with anxiety is not to pay that much attention to what makes you anxious. That's the least interesting thing to me because mm-hmm. it's different for different people. I am much more interested in your relationship to your worry or your anxiety when it shows up. So I often people often say to me, can you teach me how to calm down? Right? I need to know how to calm down. And I say, well, a far more interesting question actually is how do you freak yourself out? And how do you stay freaked out? And how do you keep freaking yourself out? So the goal is to pull that pattern out, Mm -hmm. to pay attention to the messages that you're giving yourself, pay attention to the responses that you have, which can become very powerful and very fast. And how do we interrupt the response you have to the anxiety and the worry when it shows up, which is why I call it a cult leader, because it shows up, it has all these demands. And so... When anxiety is in charge, it basically says, I want certainty and comfort, people. So I need to know exactly what's going to happen, and I need to feel comfortable. And if you can't pull that off, then we're avoiding. Well, then the skills become, how do I tolerate uncertainty? Because guess what? Life is uncertain. How do I tolerate discomfort? Because guess what? That's going to happen. And how do I recognize when my anxious voice has shown up and is trying to get me to believe that I am in an emergency. Mm-hmm. And once we can start to change that relationship and have a different conversation with the worry when it shows up and practice when it's not there, right? We have to do the role playing and the practicing, then we're changing our relationship with it. Whether or not you are worried about cats or spiders or vomit or people or death or thunder, whatever. The message is always the same from the anxiety disorder. (gasps) This is a life-threatening situation. You need to get out. And it's generally not. When we're in a life-threatening situation and we have to get out, we don't call that anxiety. If a bear was chasing you, you wouldn't be running away. And people would say, God, Elizabeth was so anxious when she was running away from the bear. It makes perfect sense. Anxiety is a hijacking of a primitive system. And our job is to interrupt that pattern. I've also noticed the increase of anxiety disorders has come in with the use of social media and the faster pace of our lives and the intense Mm -hmm. expectations that people have. Mm -hmm. There's never a reset time, you know, that, that there's never a time that we reset back to our calmer, you know, uh, Mm-hmm. prepared and alert, but not panicked place. Right. And I wonder how that plays into it, that people don't recognize themselves when they're not in a state of high anxiety mm-hmm. because 
when they start to feel in that calm, alert state, that feels frightening to them because we don't have time for reset. Right. Well, one of the things that I think is interesting, and we look at technology and we look at social media and we look at smartphones, which I call certainty devices because it allows us to get all the information we need all the time, right? Remember when we were younger, if you couldn't remember the lyrics of a song or the name of a band, you had to live with that uncertainty all day, Elizabeth. You just had to carry that around inside of you, not knowing. Now we, they, kids don't have that experience. But if we look at the things that have changed in terms of our normal sort of our, like you say, our sort of non-stressed out state with smartphones, kids are more sedentary. They're inside a lot more. They are constantly monitored by parents, getting rid of those tracking apps. People get rid of the tracking apps. Sleep is disrupted. So we're not exercising. And the face-to-face communication, the in real time hanging out that kids used to do has greatly diminished Mm -hmm. and unstructured play has been hugely impacted. So if we're to take a combination of all those things, if we were to take a 50 years ago, if we were to take 10, you know, active, happy little nine-year-olds and we were to do all of those things to them within a month, we would have different kids. Agreed. And I think that's, that's really something that as a culture, we need to look at. And I, you know, parents will say to me, well, what can I do? What can I do? And I go take the phones out of the bedrooms or don't give them a phone, get rid of the tracking app, read to your kid and let them have unstructured play so that their days aren't scheduled. And the parents are like, oh, I have to do that. Right. Oh, yes. Yes. That's what you have to do. Yeah. 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 I remember parents coming when I first started doing this work and they'd say, I'll do anything for my child. I just don't want them to be, you know, so stressed or so upset or whatever they're Mm -hmm. thinking. I'll do anything. And I'd say, what about taking them on a camping trip? Well, you know, I can't do that. Yeah. What about, what about, you know, playing a game at night as a family? And I would offer things. I'll do anything. And as soon as I started giving these tangibles, there was, yeah, just, I don't have time. Like what else could, could, could we do? And I, yeah. I think that's what's so interesting about the mental health field is that it's not magic there. What you're talking about is really pragmatic that how we take care of mental health is really foundational. And people are hoping, I think that when they're paying money for help, that it's going to be wizardry Mm -hmm. or medication that, Mm -hmm. that they're offered. And when it is something pragmatic, like get them off their phones and take them camping, all these things that doesn't feel mystical enough to really be valuable. Correct. And the research is very, very clear that moving your body and exercising is one of the best things that we can do for our mood. Another study just came out recently that said that exercise is 1.5 times more effective than either psychotherapy or medication for the treatment of depression. And we are designed to move. Our bodies are designed to move. If you know, somebody I was talking to a another therapist friend and she said, you know, if we took all the depressed kids we had and all the depressed teens and all the depressed adults and we said, okay, so before we medicate you, you have to do a month of consistent exercise, right? Get outside. Do I she said, I wonder how many people would come back after a month and be like, you know, I feel better. I feel yeah, better. Your time. 
Yeah. Yeah. Remember the research that came out early on in the ADHD studies where they had kids take a run around the a lap around the track every 40 minutes and then come back and their productivity went up and their ability to study and to function. And, and where did that go? That, mm-hmm. that research was pretty solid. Where did that end up? Yeah. We have more kids on ADHD medication than ever before and nobody taking a lap around the track. Well, I think that what is interesting to me is how much really solid evidence there is that our profession ignores because the evidence has been really clear that the use of SSRIs as the first line of treatment for kids and teens for depression is really not much better than placebo, if at all. That's true. And that the side effects are pretty significant. So we're talking about emotional numbing. I don't think we talk enough at all about the sexual dysfunction that up to 50% of people experience significant sexual dysfunction when they're on an antidepressant, which I'll tell you, if your marriage is suffering and you're depressed, really hard to have that thrown in there too. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was just, I was talking to a friend who said her husband's been on an SSRI for a while. They're probably in there. They're a little younger than me. So early fifties. And the husband just said, you know what? I think, why don't we just, call the sex life off, right? Like, let's just, let's just give it up. It's right? over. Like it's, it's over. And that's just sad to me that this person has come to that conclusion. So when we are talking to families and when we are trying to educate people about what works and what doesn't work, our field, I think, does a horrible job of bringing the research to the forefront And does a great job of, like you said, nodding along Mm -hmm. that this is this is what you should do. And that this is, you know, if I hear people say all the time, well, we should treat mental health like physical health in this country. I'm like, really, that's the model because we're not so good with that either. Mm -hmm. We don't think about prevention. We -hmm. don't think about connection. Mm -hmm. And it's not really looking at what kids need and what families need, what women need. During the during the pandemic, all these women were really struggling. The rates of substance use, alcoholism in women skyrocketed. And the research shows it's in it's in my book, The Anxiety Audit. I forget the exact number, but like 76% of women, at least, it could be higher, said that during the pandemic, when both partners were home, we're assuming heterosexual couples here, the women were still doing the housework, the childcare calling for appointments, right? I mean, and, and, and we continue to say, well, why are, why are women struggling so much? Mm-hmm. It hasn't changed, people. It hasn't changed. Right. And the last thing we ever look at is the cultural narrative around it. And that's, that's what drives me is the we're constantly pointing at the individuals as being diseased or sick mm-hmm. or disordered mm-hmm. or however you want to mm-hmm. But we mm-hmm. never stop and say, if there's so many people suffering, it's not the individuals. It's got to be the institutional structure of our culture. Right. If you're just, wanna... I'm just going to invite us back. Okay, go ahead. With a reluctant therapist. And I'm Elizabeth Barrett. My guest is Lynn Lyons. You're listening to Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. And dive back in. Well, I think what you're saying, I think, is really important because after COVID, we started seeing all those headlines about how horribly our kids were doing. Yes. 
And so if we're going to go with this biochemical, medical, genetic model, well, doesn't really make sense, does it? Because what happened to our kids during COVID is that developmentally, they were deprived of the thing that is really essential for their well-being, which was connection and movement and activity. And so we, we want to have it both ways. We want to say, you know, this is, this is a disease where there's something wrong with our kids' brains. We've got this biochemical imbalance. And then on the other hand, we're saying, gosh, look what happened to them when we lock them in their houses for a year. We can't have it both ways. And I think that, I, I don't know what has to happen. I guess this is where I start to feel like you feel, as Elizabeth, like, uh, you know, here we are screaming into the void. But I don't know. I don't know what has to happen for people to just really recognize that the more that we take away the things that our well-being is built upon, the worse our kids get. That we all you know? get. We, that we worst. all get. Right. Right. And I want to talk about these efforts, you know, to destigmatize mental health. Like it's just mm-hmm. been the whole rallying cry for the last 15 years, destigmatize mental health, don't have people feel shamed or embarrassed. And I understand that because we don't want people to feel shamed and embarrassed. But my sense is that all of these efforts have actually furthered the influence of big pharma, the DSM, and this disease model. It hasn't helped people be healthier. It hasn't helped people feel better about themselves. It's drawn more people into this idea that they're somehow broken. And Mm -hmm. so that's to me, if there's a, if there's a turning point away from this, it's stopping the over therapizing of our culture, like no offense to better help, but better help doesn't help. It's too many people thinking that they're broken. And as you said, then they don't do the obvious things. They spend an hour on a better help zoom call with a new therapist instead of going for a walk. Mm -hmm. And that that's my concern is that we don't have not enough therapy. We have too much therapy. And I would even, I'd love to have your feelings on this. I don't know if children or anyone under the age of 18 or even 25, because that's when we become an adult should go to therapy at all because they're too easily swayed. They know so little about themselves and therapists are not gods or genies. And there are a lot of them out there that do way more harm than good. And I know yeah. that the people that are getting helped by therapy right now are rolling their eyes at me and going, oh, Elizabeth, but there's more people that suffer than are getting help. That's true. I think probably I wouldn't I wouldn't agree that nobody under the age of 25 should go to therapy because I also treat OCD. Yeah, that's and um, so OCD is not an uncommon disorder. It's very misunderstood. Chloe uh, Kardashian doesn't really do much for people who struggle with OCD. Um, But OCD has a pretty strong genetic push to it. We know that it really hangs around in families. And when kids, for example, have intrusive thoughts because of their OCD that are really scary, it is enormously helpful for them to talk to somebody who knows about it to say like, yeah, 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 there's this thing called OCD and this is what it does. And there's an immediate relief. Now, Okay, the flip side of that is that you've got a therapist who doesn't know what OCD is, who doesn't recognize OCD, and then truly makes the problem worse by saying, gosh, if you're having an intrusive thought that you want to cut off your mom's head, I wonder what deeply that's saying about you. So there's there's sort of, 
I, I want people to go to therapy with people who know what they're doing. Um, I think here's an interesting thing too, just to go off in another, mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is kind of like cathartic for me, Elizabeth. I get to just sort of talk about all the things that I walk around grumbling about in my head all day. So thank you for this opportunity. Sure, um, so. But I'm think I'm, I'm seeing the rise in the life coach profession mm-hmm. as just another way of therapizing. Although now we can get people who say like, I was traumatized. I went through this horrible thing. I went to a course over a weekend. Now I'm a life coach. They're saying we're different than therapy. And then they say therapy, you have to go and talk about why and your mother and all that kind of stuff. That's not the kind of therapy I do. Um, But we're going to be different. And these people are well-meaning for sure, life coaches, well-meaning but really don't know what they're doing. And I think that just perpetuates this idea that we're not capable of managing, that we need more and more outside people to tell us what to do, to tell us how to live our lives, you know, parent coaching, all of that stuff, which just is giving that message consistently. There's something wrong with you and you need somebody to fix you. And it's a real, that there's that passivity again, right? There's that handing over. So I am an advocate of therapy, for a lot of things. I think a lot of kids that are depressed, I was just talking to a young guy who's pretty depressed. His mom died. He's feeling pretty shut down. And he know he knew Zippo about how depression works and more importantly, what to do to get out of it. Mm-hmm. And I think that my information that I had for him was helpful. But I think there's a big difference between good therapy and bad therapy, I think is what I'm getting at. Which I, and I I will agree, you know, that having, I'm part of the profession. So having the profession available when needed is really important. But let's remember that statistically, 1% of the population has severe mental illness. Mm -hmm, Correct. 14% of the population and another 25% goes to therapy. That's a lot of people who would be much better off doing other things. And mm-hmm. so my feeling is that instead of calling for more therapy, more therapy, more therapists, if we started in elementary school, helping children identify, hey, there's going to be times in your life where you feel awful or you feel anxious. Let's just assume that we're going to feel those things and start teaching those coping skills in elementary school. Mm-hmm. Let's do a comprehensive sex education that teaches about relationships and communication. If we did all of that work in our school systems, we would cut the need for therapy down by who knows how much. Well, we don't like prevention. Yes. We don't like prevention. Why? And, <laughs> right? So so I I say all the time, the very skills that I teach in my office, I've got a, I've got a kid in my office, I've got a family in my office like full-blown, diagnosable, generalized anxiety disorder or OCD, the very skills I am teaching to that family are the same skills that work for prevention. I am not pulling out a whole nother bag of tricks. I am talking about how do you manage your emotions? How do you tolerate uncertainty? As my mentor says, how do you step back from your feelings long enough to evaluate them? How do you make decisions? How do you problem solve? These are all really helpful skills. Mm -hmm. How do you communicate? How do we develop empathy? Mm -hmm. How do we teach kids how to be good winners and good losers? How do we teach them how to have a conversation? All of these things that are really preventative, they're the very same things I teach to families once they've sort of found themselves in that deep hole that they can't get out of. Right. 
And that that ability to access information and feel confident that the information is helpful would also require more respect for the wisdom of people who've been doing something for 30, 40 years and not taking the advice of an influencer who has children that are one and two years old and they don't, they really don't know. So that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother show. But Lynn Lyons. I just, I just saw somebody on, I just saw somebody on Instagram. That's an OCD anxiety coach. It's like a 22 year old who just got treatment for his OCD. And now he's a coach on Instagram, right? Yeah. I don't even think I don't think we got deep enough into it, Lynn. So I hope you'll come back and be my guest sure. again. Sure, sure. I told you it's very cathartic. I'll come back. Yeah. I'm again, Lynn Lyons. You can hear more from Lynn on her podcast called Fluster Clucks. Uh, Lynn is also an author, uh, the Anxiety Audit and Anxious Kids, Anxious Parents: Seven Ways to Stop the Worry Cycle and Raise Courageous and Independent Children. Um, Lynn is a speaker, so you can find her at lynnlyons.com. I would imagine that's correct. So thank you so much. This has been a conversation with a reluctant therapist. I'm Elizabeth Barrett. Send me an email to Elizabeth at thereluctanttherapist.com. I love to hear what you have to say or leave me a message on Instagram and Facebook, uh, podcast or show, listen to previous shows, share it with your friends. But as always, thank you so much for supporting this show and Central Coast Public Radio, KCBX. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom. Let it be.